uh, that we would uh, continue and just continue ministering in churches. I, at this time, I do want to say thank you to your pastor for having us in. It is our pleasure to worship with you this evening and look at God's Word. Uh, we'll be in Second Chronicles chapter number 14. Before we read, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you now and we do thank you again for just the, the gifts that you've given to us, the blessings you've surrounded our lives with. Uh, I pray and just thank you for the opportunity to look at your Word tonight. Lord, I pray that your truths would become evident and we take those truths and apply them to our life. In your name we pray. Amen. When we look at Scripture, oftentimes we see this comparison of the Christian life to that of a race. Uh, we see this race that we're supposed to run uh, all throughout Scripture. Philippians 3.14, the idea of uh, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God through Christ Jesus. This idea that as we run our race, we are called to be faithful to the end. Now, when we look through Scripture, we see men who ran their race, and you look at their Christian life and just the, the, the brief aspect of, of their, their race in, in the terms of their life. And oftentimes, the stories that we remember well are men that race, ran their race faithfully to the end. Uh, now, each and every one of us in here who are saved started our Christian life at different points uh, in time. Uh, some of us started our Christian race later on in life. Uh, some of us throughout our race may have stumbled, may have fallen, may have uh, fallen by the wayside. But right now, we are all starting or all continuing in our race. Different men of God, we know better than others based off of their ability to stay faithful to, to what God has given them. Uh, we talk about David, uh, a man that we know as a, a man after God's own heart. Uh, when we talk about David, we also, we also uh, talk about the story that's almost attached to his name. It's David and Goliath. We talk about Noah. It's Noah and the ark. These legacy Christians, if you will, that we know well, know from, from childhood. But what if we're to talk about a man by the name of King Asa? Does anyone in here, just out of curiosity, know anything about King Asa? And I promise you, if you do, it, it doesn't ruin the story. Just, does anybody know anything? Okay, we've got a couple. If you were to ask me this, and just to be fair, if you were to ask me if I knew anything about King Asa, uh, even a couple months ago, it'd be next to nothing. Other than the fact, on a, a test I took in college, uh, it was an Old Testament king's test, and coming through there, you had to memorize all the Old Testament kings, and sure enough, we came across King Asa. The one fact, the one fact about King Asa's life that I had to memorize was the fact he died of a foot disease. So there's not too many people that die of foot diseases, so when I saw feet on the test, immediately I'm thinking, King Asa. It's the one question on this test I know I'm going to get right. Uh, the, the one fact that just stands out about his life, the fact that he died of a foot disease, some, something seemingly insignificant. What if I were to tell you that King Asa, the man who died of a foot disease, also conquered a million-man army? Now you're saying, wait a second. David conquered a giant. King Asa conquered a million-man army. Uh, we know David and Goliath, but it's King Asa and the foot disease. What happened in King Asa's life that made his legacy less significant. What happened in King Asa's life that when it came down to measuring the two stories hand in hand made King Asa's seemingly worthless? If I were to boil it down to one point, and really this is the, the topic of our, our, our message tonight, it's the fact that King Asa, in the process of running his race, he lost his focus. King Asa's story begins in verse 1 of chapter 14, after the passing of his father, and it reads, so Abijah slept with his father, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his reign, or Asa his son reigned in his stead. In the days of the land was quiet ten years. So essentially what's happening here, King Asa is taking over his father who just passed away, and for the first ten years of King Asa's reign, 
It's quiet in the land. In other words, there's no wars. There's no uprising. There's no rebellions that King Asa immediately has to, to t- take over. So here he is. He's king for 10 years. After the 10th year, as you'd imagine, he, he's marching off to war for the very first time. Now, being a, a somewhat new king, never been to war before, if you can imagine marching off to war for the very first time, you're going to want to bring an army with you, an army of a decent size. In case you, you know, make a mistake, you at least have a, a couple of men to back you up, right? So King Asa is marching off to war, and he's got 200,000 men with just bows and arrows. 200,000 men with bows and arrows. He's got 300,000 plus men with shields and spears. So you're looking at about a, a half a million man army. King Asa marching off to a war uh, comes to a halt on the edge of this valley ridge and he's peering across on the other side. He doesn't want to get stuck in the, the basin of the valley and have to fight uphill the remaining of the time. So he's waiting for the enemy to approach. And sure enough, they do. The Ethiopian army in verse number 9. And there came out against them Zerah, the Ethiopian, with a host of a thousand, thousand and three hundred chariots and came unto Marisha. Uh, then Asa went out against him and they set the battle in the ray of the valley of Zephthah there in Marisha. So essentially what's happening here, King Asa with his half a million man army is a halt at, or has them at a halt on the edge of one side of the valley. On the other side comes the Ethiopians coming up and over the valley ridge and starting to march into the valley towards them. And now if you're like me, you, you like to picture things as if they're happening right now. You're trying to envision what this would look like. So as you see the army, maybe the Ethiopians just begin to peek up and over the, the ridge. At this point, your heart's beginning to race because you know the battle is about to take place. And then they come over the ridge and they're coming down the hillside. Yet, when you're peering at the top, men just keep coming. And they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming to the point there's a million men standing in front of them. And if you're like me, again, you're trying to picture this. What does a million people in one spot look like? Now, I know Seattle's busy. In the streets, you're, you're looking through the streets, there's a lot of people. Uh, you're thinking about sports stadiums, different stadiums you can look at, different ball games you can attend. And you're looking around, maybe perhaps uh, they're in a, a stadium. The average stadium holds generally around 60 to 70,000 people. If you've ever been to a game before, you know how packed those stadiums get. Better yet, you know how hard it is to find your car after the game gets out. Uh, you, amongst the herds of people. There's a reason why people leave during the seventh inning stretch. It's so they don't get stuck in the traffic trying to exit the parking lot. But if you were to have a million man army, let's take a, a larger stadium, a stadium that holds generally around 100,000 people. Let's fill it to the very brim. Every seat is filled. Now take that stadium and set it side by side by side by side by side by side and do it 10 times. Now imagine having 10 stadiums, 100,000 people per stadium uh, gathered together in just a, a, a kind of a, a circle. Again, the game gets out, the, the people are cheering, and then the gates open up. Now imagine trying to find your car. You know, you talk about the herds of people that would have been marching towards King Asa. Again, can I remind you, this is the very first time King Asa has been to battle, and he's outmatched two to one. If you were to ask me the question, we were talking about King David earlier. Uh, we know King David for conquering a giant. Uh, if you were to ask me, hey, would you rather go out to, to war and conquer a million men, or to, to, to go up against a million man army two to one, or fight a really tall guy one on one, I'd probably take the giant just because the odds are probably more in my favor than being outmatched two to one. You get the picture? But when we're weighing the two stories, we're weighing the, the gravity of the event. Why is it then that we remember King David? As the story goes on, we see King Asa's response to this overwhelming 
trial, if you want to put it that way, this overwhelming uh, task that lay before him, you want to see his response, verse number 11. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let no man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people that were with them pursued them unto Gerar, and the Ethiopians were overthrown, that they could not recover themselves, for they were destroyed. God gave King Asa the victory over this million-man army. If this were to happen today, it'd be something that everyone uh, in the country, if not the world, would hear about. This was a task worth hearing about. Yet again, when I asked, you know, does anybody know anything about King Asa? There's a few, you know, shaky hands that come up. Again, his story is forgotten because he lost his focus in the process of running his Christian race. But if we were to, 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 to look at it a little bit more closely, in losing his focus, what steps did he take in losing his focus? The very first step that King Asa made was the fact he became comfortable in his Christian life. When I say the word comfortable, typically we, we answer, well, you know, I like being comfortable. Uh, maybe you're thinking of a specific spot in your house that you immediately retreat to after a long day's work. You know, maybe it's a specific spot on your couch that you've sat there so many times that it literally engulfs your body. It has your body print because you've sat there so many times. And this idea of being comfortable, we like being comfortable. We're not talking about, you know, that specific spot on your couch, but the idea of becoming comfortable in your Christian walk where you're no longer relying on God, but relying on self. It's this interesting idea of, uh, of failing to seek God on a daily basis. We're not going to just end up seeking God on accident. Oh, we're going to have to make that purpose or, or purpose in our life to seek God on a daily basis. And here King Asa was, uh, he was king for, for several years afterward, but he gradually became more and more comfortable in his Christian walk. Now, if we were to evaluate our lives, evaluate which aspect of our life we become most comfortable in, it's not typically when we're on that mountaintop experience. You know what I'm talking about? That, that part of your life where you're saying, you know, God's just blessing you left and right, and everywhere you're looking, there's just another blessing. That, that point in our life where we have uh, this obligation to thank God for what he's given to us and for what he's doing in our life. Typically, we don't become comfortable in our life on the opposite end of the spectrum, the, the side of the spectrum uh, where you tend to hit rock bottom. Everywhere you look, it's just a, another problem, another task, another trial that you have to, to face. At this time in your life, typically you're obligated uh, to turn up to God. You have nowhere else to turn. This point in your life where you're seeking God's help, seeking counsel, you, you, you want to figure out how to overcome these trials. Typically in the Christian life, when we become most comfortable, it's simply in the everyday life. It's the, the routine, the mundane, the monotonous, again, everyday life where we become comfortable in our Christian life. We use the illustration you know, of a mechanic. If a mechanic, let's just say he'd never worked on a car before, but he was entering an auto shop for the very first day of work. You better believe that mechanic, when he walks into the shop, he's going to be paying attention to the people around him. He's going to be asking questions. He's going to be uh, looking intently what he's supposed to do to, to fix this problem. But let's say that that very same mechanic was a mechanic for 26 years. 
I think there'd be a little bit of a difference when that, when that mechanic walks into work uh, after working there for 26 years to the point where he's no longer, you know, looking at the people around him and what they're doing. He's not, he's not asking questions on how to fix a problem to the point where he pretty much has to listen to the car run and he knows the problem. The mechanic knows what he's doing. He, he is now able to, to work on these cars. He's able to do these things on his own. But the same point in the Christian life, we come to this point, maybe we've been a Christian for uh, just a couple of months. We come across a trial, a, a, a wall that's in front of us. We don't know how to overcome this trial. Well, we, we, we ask those around us. We ask our, our friends, our family. We, we ask God. We look to Scripture for, for the answer. God gives us uh, the answer to our problem, and we're thanking God for what He's done in our life. But perhaps, you know, that very same Christian, a couple years down the road, comes across a very similar problem. So, you know, I've, I've dealt with problems much worse than this. And essentially what we're saying in our life is, you know, God, I've, I've got this one. I, I can do this one on my own. King Asa's story picks back up in uh, chapter 16, verse number 1. Verse 1 reads of chapter 16, In the sixth and thirtieth year, so 26 years has transpired since this victory against the Ethiopians, reign of Asa by Asa, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah to the intent that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So essentially what's happening here in the story, Baasha, the king of Israel, has come up to Judah and has set up a modern-day blockade around the city. Uh, no food, no, no water, no uh, goods are allowed in or out. He's, he's cut out the trade. So if you're thinking at this time, if King Asa doesn't do something, his people are going to starve. If King Asa doesn't do something, his people are going to die on his watch. So again, he's faced with another task. He's faced with another trial, another obstacle in his life. Now, if you're thinking chapter 14, King Asa, this is a man who trusted God. This is a man who relied on God. It was like 100% faith that King Asa is relying on for the victory. But what does King Asa do? Verse number 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, that dwelt at Damascus, saying, There is a league between me and thee, as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Go and break thy league with Baasha, king of Israel, that he might depart from me. So essentially what's happened here is he's taken gold and silver out of the house of God. He has this, this, this uh, the king of Syria, this king who has a league with both Baasha and Asa. King Asa says, here's the gold and silver. If you break your league with Baasha, and it looks like we're teaming up now, King Baasha is, is going to leave. He's going he's to flee because he, he doesn't have the men to fight this battle. Essentially, his plan, if you were to keep on reading, it works. But you catch it? He was stealing from the house of God. Let's put this in a modern-day perspective, just so we understand you know, the, the gravity of this. Let's just say the president comes. He says, Pastor, I need your tithes and I need your offerings. Pastor says, well, what do, what do you need our tithes and offerings for? He says, I've got a foreign affair I need to take care of. Pastor then says, well, that's not what our tithes and offerings are for. Let's just say, again, totally hypothetical. A uh, president just comes in and, and takes the tithes and the offerings and pays off this foreign leader, has a victory. If you're looking at the this, this, this situation, you're saying, you know, that's, that's not right. He, he's stealing from the house of God. But if you were to look at it, from, from a world's perspective, King Asa, he is a successful king. His plan worked. He went two for two in military victories. He hasn't lost a battle. But if I had to point out, the enemy of the best decision that you can make is oftentimes just another good decision. 
If you keep reading on the story, you see that King Asa has now become so comfortable in his life that he's no longer relying on God, but he's relying on past experiences. He's relying on what he knows, uh, what he thinks is best, and is failing to seek God. Again, we're not going to seek God by accident. Seeking God is going to be on purpose. If you were to keep on reading through the story, you see that King Asa is then approached by a prophet. The prophet comes before King Asa, uh, says a few words, essentially calls uh, King Asa foolish. He says, King, you've done foolishly in the sight of God, but it's not too late. Your story's not over. You're going to have consequences. You're going to have more wars, but your story's not over. You can't ask for forgiveness. If you're looking at this story right here, the story of a prophet approaching a king, you're probably thinking of another story, of another man we've talked about several times tonight, the story of King David. Do you remember the story of, of the prophet, or King David after he sinned? He's approached by the prophet Nathan. Prophet Nathan then comes to the king and says, King, you've done foolishly. He gives him the parable of the sheep. The story of the man who had a lot of sheep steals from this poor man who only had one sheep. Do you remember David's response to the, the parable? David responds out of anger, and he's to this point, he's like, you need to kill that man who stole that, that, that poor man's sheep. Prophet Nathan then responds, thou art the man. Do you remember how David responded to correction? It was his heart of repentance. When we look at Psalms 51.10, you see David's heart before God. He's saying, God, create in me a clean heart, O God. He's crying out to God for forgiveness. The second step that King Asa made in losing his focus was he failed to seek repentance. He, he refused correction. Verse number 10, Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in the prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. King Asa has come to the point in his life now that he's not seeing clearly. He's relied on what he knows, what he thinks is best. He's come to this point where he's so consumed with self, so consumed with pride, he can't take correction. There's a big difference between King David's story and King Asa's story. The difference is the fact that King David asked for forgiveness. And again, how do we remember King David? It's a man after God's own heart. One of the biggest differences in these two men's lives is one was able to get their focus back on God. You know, as we run our Christian life, as we run the race, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall. But it, it's not what we do after, or it's, it's not the fact that we stumble that's the problem. It's what we do after we mess up. It's, it's what we do after we, we've fallen. King David got his eyes back on God. King Asa, his story ends four, four verses later. If we were to look at verse number 12, you see pretty much King Asa's eulogy. And even at the end of King Asa's life, He's given a second chance. Verse number 12 reads, And Asa in the 39th year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. It's kind of this point in King Asa's life. And again, there's, there's two verses after this where you have King Asa's eulogy. And King Asa dies of a foot disease. Of all the things that King Asa could have been remembered for, uh, of all the good things that he was able to accomplish, chapter 14, King Asa, he's conquering a million-man army. Chapter 15, King Asa, we didn't go through it, but he's commanding the nation of Judah to seek God. 
If you're looking at the nation of Judah and all the kings that they had, there's only a handful of them that even sought God. So you'd think that Asa would have a step up on the rest of them, yet his legacy is forgotten because he failed to finish his race well. There's different areas of King Asa's life you can associate yourself with, but one more point, at the very end of King Asa's life, he had a second chance. And what that means for us in here, uh, we have another chance. It, no matter where you are in King Asa's life, if you're refusing correction, if you're, you're there where we aren't taking counsel into consideration that the, the latter half of King Asa's life, your story isn't over, but you still have a chance to seek God. Uh, whether you've never sought him into the, the first place, or, or maybe we have stumbled, maybe we have gotten away from God, we still have that chance to get our eyes back to God. You know, King David wasn't uh, remembered necessarily for uh, the, the, the little nitpicky parts of his life, but he's remembered because of how he finished his race. King Asa never, never finished his race, so to speak. There's a story of a Tanzanian runner. In 1968, Tanzania sent off four men to Mexico City to run in the Olympics. Uh, these men were, were gifted in different areas, but there was one by the name of John Aquari. John Aquari's race was the marathon. Now, when he trained there in, uh, from the, the country or where Mount Kilimanjaro is located, uh, he was running now in Mexico City where there is a great elevation difference. And he had not trained at a higher elevation. But there he was set out and determined to run his race to the end. John Aquari starts off his race, and as you can imagine, without the training at high elevation, started off fairly poor. Now, he's running his race hard, and he finds himself closer to the middle of the pack. And in the attempt to make a move, to, to move himself further up the pack, he finds himself in a, in a pileup. Uh, about halfway through the race in this pileup, uh, um, John Aquari finds himself with a dislocated right knee and a severe gash. The medics come in and approach him. They see his leg obviously out of joint. Uh, it's, it's bleeding at this point, to the point where the, the medics tell him, you should not continue your race. John Aquari, after receiving some medical attention, gets back on his feet and continues limping along. There in the pain, the agony, the anguish, the, the fatigue of running this marathon, with 15 miles yet to run, with a dislocated knee, he continues his race. The sun begins to set. There in the, the stadium, the lights are now shutting off. The TV men are, are now putting away the cameras. When a, a lone figure enters the stadium, hobbling. And there John Aquari is seen entering the stadium to finish the last 800 meters of that race. Taking him several minutes to, to get around the track. Finishing an hour and a half after the first place runner. John Aquari crosses the finish line. You know, the reporters come up to them uh, after the race is over and says, John, why did you continue the race through the pain, through the anguish, through the agony? Why would you put yourself through this when you knew you couldn't win? His response was, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And here John Aquari is known, uh, he's not known for, for running a race in the fastest of times but he's known for finishing his race well. We as Christians can take a lesson from John Aquari. No matter what stage, again, of King Asa's life we associate ourselves with, maybe we, we started our race way behind. Maybe we, we stumbled in and it took us a while to get back up. 
But again, we look at King Asa's life. He was given a second chance even at the end of his life to get his eyes back on God. But the reason we do not remember King Asa is simply because of the fact he never got his eyes back on God. And here we are. We, we have this chance. Uh, each and every one of us in here has a chance to seek God. And again, I may remind you that seeking God isn't something that's going to happen on accident. But it's going to be something that we purpose to do on a day-to-day basis. Us as Christians, we, we have this opportunity to write one of two stories. We can write a story, essentially, that says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've been able to accomplish with the time that I had. At the end of that story, that legacy, I promise you, will not be remembered. Opposed to a legacy that says, look at what God has been able to accomplish through me. Look at a story that, that, that God gets all the glory at. That's the story that's going to be remembered. That's the story, if not for anything else, is going to remember for the love that you show to other people. That is the story that will be remembered. Again, we have these two options. An option to seek God and not to seek God. And as we run our race, may we, like John Aquari, finish our race. May we keep the faith and press on to the end. Again, here at the end of King Ace's life, he was given a second chance. At the end of his race, and I believe if King Asa, there on his deathbed, were to have sought God, he would have been a legacy Christian. He would have been one of those Christians that we hear about, those, those children Bible stories that's known well. But the fact that his story doesn't have a happy ending, that doesn't have to be for any of us in here. Whatever stage of King Asa's life you're in, uh, beginning, middle, or end, may we keep our focus on God. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.